and welcome to Inkcast, Inkhouse's new podcast that delves into the trending issues shaping the world of public relations. Here at Inkhouse, we like to have one foot in the future, and with that in mind, you can expect this podcast to explore everything from shifts in the media landscape, what's new in social, reporter insights, industry deep dives, and why it matters to you. I'm Samantha McGarry, a senior VP at Inkhouse and your podcast host. Today, I'm here with Inkhouse CEO Beth Monahan to discuss how the media and PR landscape has changed since Trump entered the Oval Office, what we call PR in the post-truth era. So Beth, welcome. Thank you. In November, you wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe uh, entitled Businesses are the New Battleground States. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what this meant back then? Sure. We've entered an era that none of us have seen before, it seems. Um, But after the election, we had a situation where businesses, whether they liked it or not, were being co-opted for political causes. Mm. Um, During the Muslim ban, for example, the Delete Uber campaign was born. And we have seen a lot of that happening as people speak with their wallets. Mm. Um, There was the Grab Your Wallet campaign where people were boycotting businesses that they didn't agree with uh, politically. Mm -hmm. And that really shaped public relations right after the election. In what ways did it shape PR per se. I mean, I know people took their um, their their purchasing power away, but in terms of the reputation of those companies, yeah, um, reputation is the name of the game these days. And I think a lot of companies got scared mm. and didn't want to do any PR. Um, but you can choose to hide and have no visibility, or you can choose to be visible. And I think that the the smart companies are understanding which political issues they need to own. And I am not in any way suggesting Mm. that we walk around tweeting at Donald Trump. Mm. What I am suggesting is that companies need to understand which policies have an impact on their employees, on their partners, on their customers, and that they choose to own those issues before they get owned by them. So we've talked a lot about how the uh, news cycles have changed and accelerated, and there's this uh, declining trust in the media. Um, But at the same time, businesses need to be relevant and part of the news cycle. And you talk about businesses being sort of hesitant to, to, uh, to really throw the, the, the hand in the ring. What advice would you give businesses trying to figure out how to be relevant in this crazy news cycle? Yeah, I mean, you have two choices. You can be irrelevant or be relevant. And being relevant means that you need to be engaged in the world in which we're living. Yeah. It's easy to want to go live in a bubble and pretend that the climate we have today doesn't exist, but that's just not a choice anymore. Um, we have a consumer population that feels empowered to be activists. Mm. Um, the United example is, is a very high-profile example right. of a public mistake. Um, but I, I would argue that had that happened 12 months ago, the vitriol that came at United afterward would not have been as severe. It feels like the, uh, the bar for having uh, the national audience sort of outrage um, come at you full throttle has changed. Yeah. And there's a very short window between making a mistake and figuring out how to handle that crisis and how to, what steps you need to take. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a um, an exercise in goodwill in many ways, and too often companies think that they need a crisis plan the moment a crisis occurs. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the truth is that you've always needed a crisis plan before, and right. when you come up with one on the fly, we're not going to make it good. Mm-hmm. PR can only make it less bad. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the truth, though, is that a crisis, you know, recovery from a crisis, I think today a crisis can happen much more quickly than ever before. It can happen in seconds on social media. Right. You get one influential uh, blogger or social media star to, to take that message forward and you have a problem. Right. And consumers feel empowered that way, as they should. But if you are an organization that has a lot of built up goodwill and has done a good job in, of public relations, and I don't mean good media relations, mm -hmm. I mean relating to your publics. <laughs> if you have done a good job of that and you have built up goodwill, um, you will recover from a crisis much more quickly. So um, crisis planning, let's talk about crisis planning. Uh, what are the steps um, what used to be the steps for the traditional crisis planning and kind of what different steps do people need to take now? Yeah, I mean, a good crisis plan has a chain of command. So when a crisis happens, you know exactly who gets the phone call and mm -hmm. who makes the decisions. And you have holding statements, we call them, for mm -hmm. specific scenarios. Those specific scenarios, unfortunately, require a grotesque imagination right. um, for the unimaginable. Right. And the unimaginable has become a lot broader and a lot more unique these days. Right. Um, it used to also be that you had a couple of days to deal with a crisis. Today, you have a few minutes. And so your statements need to be tweets. And you need to have content ready to go to counteract what has happened. I think the other thing that has changed dramatically is the onus on the organization to be plain spoken and truthful. Can you give me some examples? Yes. Um, we call it the post-truth era, and we, we kind of named it that, as you know, Sam, because mm -hmm. of the alternative facts that came out of the election. And PR gets a bad name when people use it to spin information. And, right. You know, just last week we were having discussions about whether Sean Spicer was in or, or among, among the Bushes. Exactly. Um, we've heard Ben Carson say things like slaves are involuntary immigrants. Right. And I think United had a hard time when they came out and said that they reaccommodated the passenger. Those types of phrases that can be misconstrued or perceived to be covering up the real truth. Or corporate speak. Or corporate speak. Um, corporate speak, by the way, has never been a good popular thing. or a good thing, and buzzwords have never been a good thing. And I would just argue that the stakes have never been higher. And so words that actually mean something that right. are easy to consume make the difference and authenticity yes as well you know truth is always a lot easier to deal with because but it's it, the truth <laughs> but it feels to me like uh the sort of the combination of uh more people being on on social yeah. the the news cycles and this kind of national psyche of you know quick to outrage yeah is it's like a perfect storm. Yeah, it's like there's a lit match somewhere and it's just looking for some gasoline <laughs> and it's easy to find. So, I mean, what kinds of companies should be doing this uh, exercise of grotesque imagination? And, um, and the traditional crisis plan used to be, you know, a three-wing binder that was dusted off, you know, once a year and looked at kind of what <laughs> shape or format or process does it need to be in now? Yeah, I mean... I could argue that you should dust that thing off every week or every right. day. Um, any organization that has public visibility needs to think about this. Right. 
if you're a public company, if you deal with a consumer audience, certainly the stakes are a lot higher. As mm-hmm. we saw with Uber, as we saw with you know Neiman Marcus, we right. see this with consumer brands right. lots more than we do with business to business brands. Right. Um, but every organization, um, even if you if you have a large workforce, any right. employee could become a vigilante if they perceive to be treated unfairly. Correct. So do you have? A workforce made up of immigrants. Right. Do you have a lot of women who work for mm-hmm. you who care about women's rights these mm-hmm. days a lot more than they used to? Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, the accelerating sort of escalation of crises, uh, are there tools that um, people need to be using more so they have their fingers on the pulse of when something? happens or it's you know going viral or building up so that you know that command chain there's that whole thing like if i'm not on social media maybe it didn't happen (laughs) yeah um (laughs) i can go hide in the bushes yeah right um if you're not on social media people are still talking and so a a sophisticated crisis um, plan or a sophisticated communications plan in general needs to be monitoring what's happening on social media um, and what's being said about your brand and about the issues that you care about so Mm -hmm. that you can engage in them in an intelligent way Let's talk a little bit more. You said something before about goodwill. Um, Goodwill doesn't happen overnight. No. uh, But crises do. Yes. (laughs) So uh, what kind of, uh, can you talk a little bit more about sort of what that, what constitutes goodwill? Uh, And and then also how, how is it something that you nurture? Because again, it's something that it can't be forced. It has to be authentic. Yeah. Goodwill is something you get, it's like the combination of doing what you say you're gonna do and delighting your audiences with joy, mm-hmm. right? So doing what you say you're gonna do is having a product that works the way you say it's going to work, keeping your contracts, just doing your business well. Right. And those are kind of table stakes. Mm-hmm. And so that does something that gets you goodwill. Um, if you connect to people's values, that mm-hmm. also helps with their goodwill. So if you're a company that clearly articulates your values and attracts people to you that share those values, that mm-hmm. helps. The other thing, though, is this joy factor, right? Right. And so if you um, delight people with joy, you're going to help foster a lot more goodwill than you would if you ignored them. You know, there was a a Mother's Day. Somebody always forgets, you know, to deliver flowers or they just have a logistical crisis. And I've heard about these florists who actually make the phone calls to your mom for you if they're not going to be able to make the delivery. And that, you know, that's they made a mistake, but they surprised you with joy. So um, I guess what you're saying is you, that's something that you need to be working on, you know, 24-7, yeah. always. It should be a, a matter of business. A matter of business. Yeah. Uh, so that when the crisis happens, uh, you have this store of goodwill and people will go to bat to defend you, yes. or at least not to sort of get their pitchforks out and yeah. come at you yeah. with the masses. Yeah. If, you're, if you have a anger bubbling underneath the surface there's nothing like a good crisis to bring it right out so the last few months have been interesting to say the least do you think we'll continue in this state (laughs) Um, politics aside do you think that people will become more forgiving do you think that uh you know in the world of marketing there's a lot of talk about customer experience and loyalty and all that kind of stuff it all feels like it comes together yeah and I, i think you know, the climate is um, a weird one in which you know, we used to have this narrative where government created fair rules mm-hmm. and businesses tried to take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. And that has been flipped. And um, so consumers are looking for the businesses that they can rely on and the businesses that they can punish. And so 
this isn't going to stop until that scenario gets Changes. shifted. And so I, you know, I expect that um, <laughs> we're going to be here for a while. So for, you know, PR and marketing folks who, you know, plan on a quarterly, six-month annual basis, yeah. how does that affect, you know, our work in the trenches? I think we just have to be hyper vigilant. You know, we have mm-hmm. to understand what issues could affect us. We have to be watching for those every single day. And mm-hmm. if we're ready for them, then we'll be able to, to manage them in the right way. So that takes a different mindset. It takes, yeah. it takes the, uh, if, you, if your messaging is fixed, it means that you need to have like a plan B. Or a plan C. Or a plan D. Yeah, yeah. And, and be willing and ready yes. to, to make that change. Yeah, you have to be, be a lot more agile mm-hmm. than we used to be. And that's hard for big companies. Right. Yeah. Especially uh, big companies that, you know, bake in their plans. Having yeah. that sort of flexibility to, to react in the moment. I think it is. it requires a flexibility to be a real human. Mm-hmm. And to not do what we think is the right thing to do, but to do the thing that feels right in that very moment. And that can change from... Moment. moment to moment, moment. Yes, it can. <laughs> absolutely um so the other thing is um can you talk a little bit more about how brands can reach their audiences if getting through these of the regular earned media channels is tough enough what other things uh, marketers should be thinking about to be sure that you know in spite of everything that's going on, their content and messaging is still being you know, heard and seen. Yeah, I mean, it's not enough to just get a, a placement in the New York Times anymore. Everyone mm-hmm. used to think you get in the Times, everyone sees it. Unfortunately, um, if it's not on Facebook, it didn't happen. So <laughs> um, it needs to be visible where your audiences consume information. That might be LinkedIn, it might be Facebook, mm-hmm. it might be Snapchat. Um, so we ha- our job as marketers is to get that message um, out there and amplify it to mm-hmm. where our audiences live because they're not going to come to it anymore. We right. have to bring it to them. And so traditionally we've used earned media mm. to do that. Uh, are you saying that that's not enough? I'm saying that earned media is a huge piece of it, but it goes way beyond that these days. We have to... Um, we have to create integrated campaigns that mm-hmm. support visibility across a number of vehicles and in paid social media and, and some um, wisely placed advertisements are a big part of that mix. So how does that impact what goals we've set traditionally and sort mm-hmm. of how we measure what we do? Yeah, the measurement is, is a very important question. It's one mm-hmm. we're looking at, as you mm-hmm. know, here. We used to just care about how many people saw it. Right. And that, that era spawned all the clickbait that everybody grew to hate, all yep. the puppies you had to see before you died. Um, listicles. Listicles. Um, but today, uh, we're seeing the media shift toward measuring engagement and people who are actually willing to become loyal readers who subscribe to their content. And I think that we, mm. we're going to see companies moving in that direction too because you don't want to reach everybody. And in fact, reaching the wrong person is, is almost as bad as right. not reaching the right person. Right. So building engaged audiences um, is an exercise in quality over quantity. Interesting. Okay. The other thing that I've been very aware of in the past couple of months is the fact that uh, journalists and the media are under intense scrutiny and there's much more investigative reporting yes. and fact-checking. And so I wanted to ask you where you see this sort of the role of data in that whole mix. Yeah, um, fact-checking. It's mm. a good thing. <laughs> it's interesting to see this resurgence of investigative journalism, and I think it, it is important to the media's industry. Mm-hmm. They needed that. Right. Um, and so I, I applaud it, and uh-huh. I think we need it. Um, but 
no one's going to take your word for it anymore. And so having data to back up your claims, having customers mm -hmm. who can reinforce what you're saying, these things are all becoming important again in a, in a, in a big way. So um, data can be sourced in many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen uh, reporters getting skeptical of the sort of the, the vendor commissioned Survey. studies. <laughs> Um, what other sort of ways can, can people use data to sort of reinforce their, their messages yeah. and their claims? I think the most compelling stories come from within the heart of an organization. Hmm. You know, I, I hear CEOs sometimes ask me, like, should we own, should we be this or this in the media? What mm -hmm. keywords should we latch on to? And my answer is always that, well, first we should start with what you're really good at and what makes you unique. Mm -hmm. And that... That that's about data too. So the best way to reinforce your story is through your internal data. What kind of analytics can we bubble up? Mm -hmm. These days, almost every organization has a data scientist, mm -hmm. but that is their job. What do you know as an organization that nobody else knows? And what can you tell us about human nature mm -hmm. and how it's changing um, that, that makes it really interesting? That, that's, that sounds really interesting. And I'm curious to see um, sort of the... Uh, increase of these data scientists and the, and the evolution of data sort of for storytelling. Yes, um, me too. Yeah. So um, I guess that's pretty much all the questions I had. Um, the only thing that really I wanted to sort of leave with was, you know, where do you think the next crisis is going to come from? <laughs> oh, God. If I had, if I knew that, I'd be rich. <laughs> um, you know what? It's hard to say, but maybe the White House. <laughs> that feels like a safe guess these days, but who knows? Keep us all guessing until tomorrow. Until, or later this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for your time, Beth. This was great. Thank you, Sam. And that was InCast with Samantha McGarry. Thanks for listening.